the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's hard to believe it's been 22 years. But here we are observing the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Remember the patriotic feeling that everybody had back then? How long did that last? About a week? Now we live in a world with conspiracy theories everywhere and not knowing whether we should believe anything the government tells us. When the towers first went down, it was pretty cut and dry. Muslim terrorists had done it. There were some questions about how they were able to get away with it, but it took a while before you started hearing the conspiracy theories about it being an inside job, and they're still out there. And they may actually have become more prevalent and more believable now, not necessarily because of new facts uh, that may have emerged, but because the federal government has destroyed its credibility over the last 22 years. The reaction to COVID and the misinformation that we got from that has made everybody a potential conspiracy theorist. Remember two weeks to flatten the curve? How about the vaccines will protect you from getting COVID? We're going to be talking about government credibility a lot tonight. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Cyril Wecht about a new development, believe it or not. Maybe you've heard about this in the JFK assassination. A former Secret Service man who's now 90 years old and was 20 feet away when JFK was shot, uh, has just claimed that he had found a bullet on the back seat of the car where JFK was riding. And it, it, and then what he did with that later, it puts an end to the magic bullet theory, which Dr. Weck debunked a long time ago. And this guy kept that secret for almost 60 years. He's now written a book about it. Then in our second half hour, a doctor who pushed back against the COVID insanity from the beginning he was on this show talking about it in March of 2020. He was censored by the government, and he was just proven right by a federal judge. Stick around. Well, it has been 22 years since the towers in New York City came down, and it's something no American should ever forget. And after 22 years, there are still plenty of conspiracy theories out there about who planned it. They'll always be around, I guess. Uh, and in two months, it'll be 60 years since John F. Kennedy was assassinated. There's still plenty of unanswered questions about that. Over the weekend, a story broke about new information from a 90-year-old Secret Service agent who was 20 feet away from JFK when he was killed. And uh, when I saw the story, the first person I thought of was Cyril Wecht, Dr. Cyril Wecht. He joins us now. Cyril, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be with you. So... <laughs> I think everybody in Pittsburgh knows that you've been speaking about out about this for over 50 years. Now, this guy is uh, Paul Landis, Secret Service agent who was there that day, now says he found a bullet. I, I guess it was on the top of the back seat where JFK has been sitting. And then he describes what he did with that bullet, and we'll get to that in a minute. But do you believe him, and why would that be important that he found that bullet there? I do believe him. It is extremely important because... It shoots down the single bullet theory uh, unquestionably uh, and unhesitatingly. 
Um, I do believe him. It's been more than 50 years since I first stated that that bullet, Commissioner Exhibit 399, so-called stretcher bullet, the hero of the uh, single bullet theory, um, was um, a, um, a placed bullet that um, someone, although I did not know who, and and although it, the the uh, etiology uh, is somewhat uh, simple and innocent, but what happened thereafter is not. So yes, uh, I do believe, and I do believe that uh, it should be given full weight. It's a shame, and uh, I'm just amazed that the news media are not jumping over this uh, more than than I have encountered thus far. Yeah, it should be. Uh, you would think it would be a big deal. So, um, uh, so I'm going to get back to what you just said there. This, the, you talked about what happened to the bullet and where it came from. Uh, this um, Paul Landis, he says he we put the bullet in his pocket because when he saw it, he thought, "I got to grab that. They're going to want to see this bullet, and I don't want some souvenir hunter to to come and take it. Or if it stays here on the seat, somebody will remove it." So he says that he he took it to the hospital. And he placed it on a stretcher uh, that he said was JFK's stretcher. And then it was later believed, or at least claimed, to have come, uh, the the bullet when it was presented was said to have been found on John Conley's stretcher. So why is that important? Which stretcher he found it on? Well, obviously, the single bullet theory has the bullet being found on or beneath John Conley's stretcher. That's where they say it wound up after going through uh, Kennedy's uh, back, neck, um, and then Conley's uh, chest in and out, and then Conley's uh, left wrist in and out, and into his left thigh. So it's very important because that is the essence of the single bullet theory. In the story, I'll read it to you. Uh, One key point to raise here concerns a fundamental underpinning of the Warren Commission report the supposition that the retrieved intact bullet, and intact is important here too, uh, I'm, I'm going to get to that I think with you, Doctor, uh, it, that the in, retrieved intact bullet had been discovered on Governor Connolly's uh, stretcher, not on Kennedy's. It was from this assumption in part that the commission reached its pivotal conclusion. The available evidence indicated that, quote, the bullet found on the governor's stretcher, the single bullet, would have caused all his Wounds. Over time, critics have referred to it as the pristine or magic bullet. Moreover, if that single bullet did not cause the damage, then ballistics tests performed at the time suggest it would have been almost impossible for Oswald to have fired all three shots within the tight multi-second time frame derived from the other main piece of evidence of the assassination, the Zapruder film. So that's that's the summation of what they taught. You know the the point about the stretcher that was in the story. That is correct. Uh, the bullet that is the hero of the single bullet theory emerged in near pristine, only slight indentation at the base. That was the impact of the firing mechanism. A uh, bullet um, is supposed to have um, destroyed four inches of Governor Connolly's right fifth rib and then to have produced a comminuted, as a fragmented fracture of the radius in his right forearm, a dense, heavy bone, and a six-foot-four guy um, like Conley. There's nowhere in the world that could have happened. 
and then so that's its condition. And the weight was 158.6 grams, as found. The bullet um, from the manufacturer weighs 161 grains, so a loss of 2.4 grains or one and a half percent, despite having enough pieces of itself visible on X-rays between Kennedy and Conley in three or four possibly uh, locations. And then the uh, trajectory is totally absurd. A bullet uh, moves horizontally and vertically uh, like a comic book character's book <laughs> would move. Yeah. So that's the single bullet there. You got to buy the uh, condition of the weight and the trajectory. And uh, so this would explain uh, all of that. It doesn't tell us um, how and why it came to be used. But I, I think it came to be used because that's when they settled on the single bullet theory. And lo and behold, they needed the bullet. So that's how that bullet came to be used for that nefarious purpose. So you say, lo and behold, they found that bullet on the stretcher. And so they assumed that it had come off of Connolly's body and didn't know or didn't want to admit that the Secret Service, someone had dropped it there. So um, what... If the bullet was on the back seat behind Kennedy's head uh, and it was a pristine bullet, where did it come from? Well, uh, it's it found somewhere in the back um, of the limousine. Um, I think it went into his back and came out of his neck and struck the back seat and fell there. And that's uh, how and when Landis found it. Yeah, but he, he says he found it, I think, at like the top of the back seat, uh, where his, like almost where a headrest would be. Yeah, well, that's a possibility that the bullet did not traverse the neck, but I don't think so. Uh, nothing to have impeded it. Um, um, I, I, I can't tell you exactly mm-hmm. why, because it was in the back of the back seat as opposed to uh, somewhere in the backseat area. We're, we're talking to Dr. Cyril Wecht, who is uh, one of the foremost uh, experts on the Kennedy assassination. Um, so, uh, Dr. Wecht, what does, what does all this information that we've just spoken about here in the last few minutes, what does that uh, say about the single gunman theory? Well, if you don't have the single bullet theory, you don't have a single gunman, mm-hmm. and that makes the Warren Commission a, a big joke, which I've said it was from the beginning. Um, the single bullet theory is the sine qua non uh, of the uh, Warren Commission's conclusion about the single um, bullet theory. That's, that's what you need to hold Oswald in. If you don't hold him in on the single bullet theory, then you've got two shooters. When you've got two shooters... That makes it a conspiracy of an issue. And uh, the case, should, how he said, should be reopened and dealt with honestly. Where do you think the other shooter would have, based on you know just the stuff that you found from your, um, your investigating and your, your autopsy that you did on the, uh, your, your investigation of the autopsy material, where do you think the second bullet or the second shooter was shooting from? The second shooter was shooting from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll, which would have placed him slightly to the right and slightly in front of the presidential limousine as it made the curve 
and was going down Elm Street from Houston. Okay. Now, here's the thing. You you said that this should be – this has – I mean, you, you've been saying for, as you said, 50 years that the, the, the theory about the single bullet was ridiculous anyway. But is, with what this guy is coming forward with, um, how can they – deny it now are they going to just say this guy are they going to say this guy doesn't know what he's talking about he's making it all up how do they maintain this this um this uh narrative if if they accept the fact that this paul landis is telling the truth they just uh negate it and they excuse and attack him personally um or his memory or what have you that's what they'll do and it will be ignored. You'll see. It will not be taken up officially, which is incredible. Incredible. So if it were a routine, routine, a routine murder case um, in any jurisdiction, it would, be have, it would have to be dealt with in an objective fashion, and so would it be. Now, um, you inspected the autopsy material. And I believe you've said that JFK's brain was missing. Was it ever located? No. Kennedy's brain has never been located. Its absence has never been accounted for. Yeah, I'm the one that pointed it out when I went down there in August of 72. And I pointed out the president's brain was missing. It's missing because proper dissection of the brain would have revealed the two hemorrhagic tracts showing the course of two bullets into the brain, not just one. And that's why they had to eliminate it. And the pathologist who did the autopsy uh, went back two weeks later after it was being fixed in a formula, which was a proper thing to do. But they did not um, serially dissect it and trace out the bullet wounds. This is amazing. An reputable forensic pathologist who um, examined this stuff before I did Never, never pointed this out, including a top-notch forensic neuropathologist. They were just bought out, caved in for whatever reason. Is it? I know there's lots of theories out there, and I don't know what your specific theories are about what it is they're hiding. But um, would it have to be something pretty bad in order for, as you just said, to get to to get to go this far with these? weak theories still not only existing, but being generally accepted by most people. Yes. Um, it, it, it has to go this far because they've bought into it now for some uh, 60 years. It has to go this far because they soon learned um, it was not the enemy, it was us, that we Americans are responsible. And that meant that it was CIA, top uh, military people, they alone could have concocted and planned and executed and covered up this kind of uh, scenario. They alone. And so now uh, they're deeply bought into it from the New York Times on down through the government. Um, and uh, it's impossible. You see, the New York Times, for example, uh, published this story in print, and not in print today, but... Uh, um, you have to uh, subscribe to it. Uh, the Landis story, you mean? Yeah, the Landis yeah. story. They, they uh, instead of publishing it as a front page story uh, in print, uh, the biggest day, 
they held it off and published it uh, electronically. Yeah. So they're they're, they're treating this the um, discovery of or the um, explanation of this bullet as a minor detail. Well, no, they can't treat it as a minor detail. They are going to treat it and 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 uh, try to explain it. Uh, it's going to you know negate it. They're yeah. going to uh, simply say that he's wrong for whatever reason. His memory, his acuity, um, whatever. I, I haven't yeah. seen the rebuttals, but that's what they're going to do. But where, where is where is that bullet today, Dr. Weck, the, the, the pristine bullet? Does it still exist somewhere? Yeah, it's in the National Archives. And... And where and what is the official explanation of where that bullet came from? Is it the official explanation that it was on? It came from John Connolly's stretcher. Is that is that what the official explanation of it is? Yes, from Connolly's stretcher, from uh, on the stretcher or beneath the stretcher, having came, come out of the left thigh wound, uh, even though he had been manipulated for surgery a couple of times, moved around, and so on. The bullet chose not to emerge until uh, afterwards when uh, he was placed on the um, stretcher postoperatively, and that's when they found the bullet. Yeah, it's, it's so so absurd as to, uh, you know, if it weren't so serious, it would surely be a laughing matter. Has anybody other than me called you yet? I would imagine you should be getting some phone calls, shouldn't you? Yes, no, I have not. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm truly amazed that I have received no other calls from local or national news media. I'm absolutely amazed. And that and the land of story seems to be getting a, a, a pretty good bit of play, but not, as in your uh, opinion, nearly enough. No, no way. Of course, not nearly enough because it it shows the the single board theory, single gunman. Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, as a single government, to be uh, absolutely erroneous. So the headline should be, uh, this story should be, Single Gunman Theory in JFK Assassination um, uh, Debunked. Debunked, refuted, absolutely. Wow. Hey, Dr. Weck, uh, I, I, I got a feeling I'm going to be talking to you again. We have the anniversary coming up in November, but... As yeah. more, more details come out here, I hope I hope that people are smart enough to call you some of the national media, and I hope they pay attention to this. But I, as right, well, I, you were the first person I thought of when I saw the story. I'm really glad you came on the show. Well, thank you, and thank you for calling me, and I look forward to chatting with you again anytime you're ready, okay? All right. I appreciate it. Dr. Cyril Wecht, and we'll be right back. Well, we're spending a lot of time talking about conspiracy theories today. You just heard from Dr. Cyril Wecht, who's been accused of spreading conspiracy theories about the JFK assassination for about 50 years, and he's been proven right based on information over the weekend. Jay Bhattacharya hasn't been around that long, but he was accused of, I guess you would call it, uh, being a conspiracy theorist very early in the COVID-19 hysteria. He joins us now. Jay, thanks for coming back on. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Never so, been called that before, though. I have to say, <laughs> yeah, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> no, no, just wait. I guess um, yeah. the headline of your piece today at the Free Press is um, 
The government censored me and other scientists. We fought back and won. What did you win? So uh, I have been involved in a lawsuit against the Biden administration uh, that alleged that we, me, I'm a scientist at Stanford University, uh, and I, as you said, John, well, I argued very, very early on that the, that the lockdown focus strategy we followed was wrong, um, and that there were alternate, better strategies like focus protection of vulnerable people better that were available. Um, we've been alle- we alleged that we'd been censored by the federal government. Um, and uh, in this lawsuit, which w- first went to a district judge in, Lu- in Louisiana and then now to the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, um, we've uncovered a vast censorship industrial complex. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's absolutely documented and true. Uh, and and now, now a federal court, uh, a, a district court, has validated that evidence. Um, but what it showed was a coordinated effort by the White House, by the, uh, by the uh, Center for Disease Control, by the, even the FBI, essentially telling social media who and what to censor on COVID policy debate, uh, alleging that, that anyone that disagreed with them was spreading misinformation and therefore was dangerous, and so therefore you had to censor. They essentially uh, told the uh, social media companies that if you don't listen to us, we're going to regulate you out of existence. It's like Al Capone saying, you know, that's a nice business you got there. It would be a shame if something were to happen to it. And so then the social media companies censored in the name of, of, uh, of, of like stopping misinformation. But really what they did, they censored because they were afraid that they would uh, lose their ability to, 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 to operate. And what this federal court just said is that we were right, that, that, the, that the U.S. government, the Biden administration, violated my First Amendment rights and violated the First Amendment rights of every single American. You were on this show uh, way back on March 26, 2020. I, I went back and checked. It was actually the second day that I did this show from home because I was locked out. Uh, so what was the argument you were making way back then when – you were pretty uh, well. You weren't as well known then as you are now. You've been getting a lot of. You've had a lot of media coverage because uh, you were making a lot of noise, and it's now, as you said, turned out that you were right. What was your argument way back then in March of 2020 that they didn't like? Well, in March of 2020, uh, what I was arguing was that we didn't yet know how deadly the disease was and that we needed to do a study to see how widespread the disease already was despite the lockdowns um, before we knew the, you know, how deadly it was and whether the lockdowns were an appropriate tool or not to address it. I was, I, was, I was acting like a scientist. I was a scientist. still am a scientist. I was saying, let's get better data before we do something really, before we continue to do something very, very drastic. Um, that's, I think, what I was telling, telling you in March of 2020, and I was right about that. I mean, I think uh, what's right, shortly after that, I ran a study measuring uh, the number of people in California, no, northern and southern California, who'd already had antibodies indicating the disease, they already had the disease. And it turned out, you know, 50 times more people had already had the disease, 40 times more people already had the disease that public health authorities didn't know anything about. The disease turned out then to be much less deadly than the 3% death rate that the, that the World Health Organization said, much, uh, much is more, somewhere on the order of 0.2 to 0.4%. Um, so it was, it's, it was, uh, that, that was, uh, I was acting like a scientist there, uh, John. I think, uh, I, you know, even if I turned out to be wrong, it was still correct to be yeah. acting like a scientist there, but I didn't turn out to be wrong. I was actually right about that. Asking the questions. Yeah, I, I listened to the discussion, and, and I, I gave the example that 
if you had a if they found if they found that um, they said that a hundred people had COVID in Pittsburgh and three of them died, they, they would say, well, that's three percent. But what if there were actually a thousand people who had it, but they didn't know it yet, and so that they it, it, the three percent is reduced by a hundred times uh, as far as the the fatality. Yeah, and in fact, John, those numbers turned out to be pretty close to exactly what the scientific data showed after all people had done the studies. A, a dozens of those kinds of studies were done after we did ours around the world, and they all found roughly the same thing. Ours was right in the smack dab in the middle, somewhere between 0.2 and 0.4% mortality. And this is in a population that had never seen COVID before. Now, of course, almost everybody had COVID. Uh, they have pretty good protection as a result of having that because your body remembers how to fight it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you can't get it again, but it doesn't mean that you're much, 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 much less likely to die than when you get it than you might have been when in, in 2020. And in 2020, it was 02 to 0.4%. Uh, we're talking to Jay Bhattacharya. He's a professor of medicine and economics at Stanford. Now, do you talk in the piece um, at, uh, what is, what's the, where was it? Um, I'm, I want to make sure I got this right. Uh, oh, free, tablet, uh, free, yeah. The Free Press. Yeah, free um, Press, yeah. Uh, you talk in, the, in that piece about how you came to appreciate freedom of speech in the U.S. and how shocked you were to find out that it was being taken away from you. What was that all about? Well, I'm, I'm an immigrant. I, I came to the country, this country when I was four. Uh, my parents came from India. Uh, they raised me up to appreciate the, what's amazingly special about the United States. And in, uh, in, if you look outside of the United States, it's actually hard to find countries that consistently uh, f- uh, give the citizens, their citizens, the right to free, free speech that won't violate it. It's, it I thought before the pandemic, it was part of, of the American civic religion that, uh, that free speech was like a, a major part of the liturgy of our civic religion. But uh, I think, um, I mean, I'm just absolutely shocked and floored that an American government thought that it was appropriate and okay, right even, to censor scientist speech, anybody's speech. Uh, we, they just, it's as if they don't understand what America is about, as far as I'm concerned. They, uh, they, I mean, I was raised thinking that the United States has this absolute commitment to free speech. That even, even I remember when I was younger, the ACLU defended the right of Nazis to walk through Skokie, mm-hmm. Illinois. And I was, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm shocked by Nazis. I thought they're, 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 they're really the bad guys. But then I was like, I was struck that he, uh, uh, the American commitment to free speech was such that even people like that who believe really evil things the Americans would support their right to speak and, and oppose them, by the way. Like, you know, that, but that's, that's part of it. Like, you can, you can do a counter-protest. You can say these people are espousing evil things. But that speech and that debate and that discussion was at the heart of what America was about, I thought. I've been shocked that, that, that not, not every American apparently shares this. And, in fact, uh, the Biden administration itself doesn't share it. Yeah, they're fighting this. They're going to probably appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it. I mean, if they were, if they were really, really uh, committed to free speech, they would, they would just concede. They would say, "Look, yes, we we made a huge mistake. Uh, we are, we we are sorry. We're going to dismantle this censorship industrial complex." You know, the judge that in the the district court, the federal judge who looked at the evidence, he called this whole enterprise. He called it a Orwellian intrusion. You know, like George Orwell, he called it a Ministry of Truth. That's Amazing. the kind of. I mean, it's it's the kind of language you would never expect to see in a in a in a sober uh, court hearing, but it's exactly what they found, um, and it's, and I you know it it accurately describes what the Biden administration has done. They have taken on themselves this idea that they can tell the difference between truth and untruth, 
uh, misinformation, not misinformation, on really disputed scientific matters and somehow suppress the speech of scientists, they do that. They'll suppress any speech. Well, in March of 2020, Donald Trump was president. Um, so some of this was happening when he was president. How much of this, was, how much pushback and how much censorship were you noticing under, when, before Trump was gone? I mean, I think it did. I think the infrastructure was there under Trump. Like you know, like you know, Trump calls this the deep state. I think mm-hmm. a lot of this came up from underneath in the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd be like bureaucrats in 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 these various agencies say, "Well, yeah, this, this is dangerous. Let's maybe we should do this." I, and I think that under the Trump administration, I think what you can say about the Trump administration is that they did not dismantle this bureaucracy um, or or rein in this bureaucracy that was doing this. The difference in the Biden administration is that the, the, the White House itself was engaged in the censorship effort. Du- we have direct emails threatening, you know, Twitter executives, Facebook executives, uh, essentially saying, if you don't censor these people and these ideas, we're going to go after you. It's, it's, a, it's like a direct threat. I mean, so that's, it's, I, mean I think what the, the, the Trump administration did was a failure. What the Biden administration di- did was an atrocity. Now, I would imagine, I'm just going to guess here, that the Biden, whoever was doing that in the Biden administration, all the way up to the president, I don't know, they would be doing that based on, I'm, you correct me if I'm wrong, a religious belief in everything that came out of Dr. Fauci's mouth. And they believed that free speech or not, millions of people were going to die if, he, if, if people like Jay Bhattacharya are still out there telling people that, disagreeing with what we're telling them that's exactly what they thought that's exactly the excuse they used that that it was so dangerous to have uh free speech on scientific matters disputed scientific matters with people from you know stanford or harvard or oxford disagreeing with tony fauci uh that that it was so dangerous for americans to be exposed to that 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 you ought to suppress it you ought to in fact i was put on a blacklist it it was a literal blacklist at Twitter when I first joined. And I wondered why, this is August of 2021 when I joined, I wondered why am I being put on a blacklist? You know, I learned about it later. It, I mean, and I think we now we know the answer. It was the government told Twitter to suppress the reach of my ideas. Now, I may have been right or wrong. I mean, I think in retrospect about the Great Branch Declaration, we were right. But that's neither here nor there. The, right, the key thing is that we deserve the right for a fair hearing. We, the American people deserve the right to a real debate, a real discussion. And this policy robbed the American people of that debate and that discussion. You came up with the Great Barrington Declaration, and the government really hated that, didn't it? <laughs> they did. Uh, so uh, the head of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, did something. He abused his position. He, he called uh, in an email to Tony Fauci. He, he called me, Martin Kulldorff of, of, of Harvard University, another co-author of the Great Branch Declaration, and Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University. She's another co-author of the Great Branch Declaration. Three of us, Stanford, Harvard, Oxford. He called the three of us fringe epidemiologists, despite, you know, in, in combination, like, you know, decades and decades of, of experience yeah. in this area. And then he called for a devastating takedown. What's that mean? It's his words. Devastating. It, devastating takedown. So what it, and Tony Fauci responded with a, with a link to a Wired magazine article, essentially claiming that we were, uh, essentially claiming that, you know, essentially like it's a propaganda piece, saying that we wanted to let the virus rip, when in fact what we were doing was we were calling for focused protection of vulnerable older people. They organized a, a propaganda campaign. Uh, I started getting death threats. I started getting racist hate mail. It was, 
it was an absolute abuse of power on the part of our federal, uh, federal science bureaucrats, including Tony Fauci and Francis Collins. Now, uh, Dr. Fauci has, uh, I guess, quote-unquote, retired, but he's still being uh, dragged in by uh, CNN and maybe MSNBC and asked for his opinions on all this. And as last I heard, he was still telling people that maybe they had to, you know, keep the lockdowns in mind and maybe uh, get everybody to wear masks again. He's still he's still out there, and they're still depending on him. He's not considered. He's been proven wrong, and he's still being uh, leaned on for his advice. It's really remarkable. Um, it's really remarkable. I think, um, you know, I, I think it's it's one thing uh, for a federal science bureaucrat to say, look, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to run these studies and do some analysis. And, you know, and, and, and that's exactly what his job was to support the conduct of science and the direction of, of what science gets done by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. But his job isn't to be the high pope of science. He's not that. And yet he brought, he, he took that on himself. Um, and it was, it was just, a, it was just a catastrophic mistake there is no high pulp of science. He shouldn't act like that. And the media was a, it was, it was a, the media made a mistake treating him like if he was if the high pulp of science. What's this going to do, Jay, uh, to the next time? If there is a next time, or if it, maybe it'll be the first time, it's actually legitimate. But if there is an actual uh, pandemic of some kind where people need to hide in their basements. Uh, and they're being told that by the government. What's that? What's what happened here going to do when you really need people to pay attention to the government? I mean, it's just a disaster, right? I've never seen in my career uh, the trust in public health uh, be so low. It's it's the lowest I've ever seen it, and um, I, I think the problem is that it's a, it's an earned distrust. If if. It's one thing if the government was right and people didn't listen and it was really unfortunate. But the problem was the government didn't even allow debate to happen. They were so certain they were right. And they turned out to be wrong on matter after matter after matter. Does, this, does the vaccine stop you from getting COVID? No. The government was wrong about that. Does, is, is immunity after COVID recovery real and important? Yes, and the government was wrong about that. Is, is, would it have been better to protect vulnerable older people and not close schools and harm our kids? Yes. The government was wrong about that. Uh, rather than honestly grappling with the processes that led to these wrong positions, uh, they, they, uh, they, they, what they're doing is they're pretending as if they, they were right. It's, hence, Tony Fauci going around and, um, you, you, and you know, you have these various places giving awards to people who were deeply wrong. And they abuse their positions of power to suppress the debate. It's, uh, it, people aren't going to trust public health in the future, John. And, you know, it's, I don't. I actually think that's a bad thing. It would, it, it's it's better if we had had some um, some humility, and then I think you know people would have forgiven being wrong. People would just ignore them next time. Well, hey Jay, I'm out of time, but you should be very proud of uh, being right from the beginning. I'm glad that uh, we had you on the show here way uh, back in March of 2020, in the early days of the insanity. And uh, I hope you're going to keep uh, doing some good work and keep people honest here the way you did with this one. I appreciate it. John, thank you for your time. Okay, that's Jay Bhattacharya. He's a professor of medicine and economics, and uh, he's uh, one of the first guys to say that it was all insane. And he was right, and they were wrong.
Yeah, I'm just wondering if anybody's heard any stories uh, since the weekend, since uh, yesterday. Maybe, well, actually over the weekend. Uh, Or have you seen any stories about an increase in poop on the streets uh, this past weekend here in Pittsburgh? (laughs) The reason I ask, there were a lot of 49ers fans at the Steelers game yesterday. Did you see a lot of red shirts there? More than I've ever seen of uh, the visiting jersey sitting together and cheering, and they were let's go Niners, and the Steelers were terrible, so they had a lot of things to cheer about. But I'm just wondering if you know, since it was we were invaded by people from San Francisco, if uh, was there like poop on the street outside of uh, Acrisure Stadium, like where there do they do they do that when they tailgate? I'm just uh, just a you know a little question. Maybe you can help me out with that. But uh, uh, and the other thing is. Christian McCaffrey made a uh, had a he had a big run uh, for the 49ers to start the second half. It's like a 58 or 60 yard run, something like that, uh, and pretty much ended the game. Then, but the Steelers were had any idea that they might come back. But here's the thing: when he's running with the ball, if you look at the, there's nobody in the stands. The stands are half empty. Now the Steelers stunk in the first half, and I, I would guess maybe some people went home. But what ha- What is it about? Steeler games that when the second half starts, where are these people? Are they in the men's room? Where are they? they they're back in the concourse drinking beer. What's the point of going to the game, putting up with the traffic? I know what the point is. It's become tailgating. And it reminds me of what my dad said. My dad had season tickets since 1946 for the Steelers. He used to go to Pitt Stadium and when you went there, every person in the stadium was there to just watch the game. They were there to, for football. No partying. You know, that was it, football. And so in 1980, after they had won four Super Bowls, and remember, he sat through from 1946 until 1980. For the first 25 years of that, it, there more than that, they, they were terrible. And he decided to not use his ticket. He had one ticket, one ticket on the 50-yard line. He said to me, I'm not going to use my ticket anymore. He was 60 years old at the time. I said, why? And he said, nah, I don't like the scene down there. He saw it happening in 1980. He wanted football. He got, I don't know, whatever people were doing before the second half kickoff and halfway in or partway into the second half yesterday. So uh, I don't know the answer to that, but all I know is I was very comfortable watching it at home. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.